Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. All right. Hello and welcome, everyone, to the Profiles and Strategy uh, podcast, Episode 2, The Peloponnesian War. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. Uh, joining me today, fellow colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department at the Naval War College. First, we have Dr. Mark Genest, who is the Forrest Sherman Professor of Public Diplomacy for the Strategy and Policy Department. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for being here. <laughs> um, additionally, we also have... Uh, sorry, here. Look at my uh, look at my notes. Make sure I'm make sure I'm getting this right. Um, Doctor Mike Palkovic is the William uh, Leader Rogers Professor of Naval History for the college. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, John. And lastly, but certainly not least, Commander Josh Hammond, United States Navy Naval Flight Officer, and a Classics major at the University of Michigan. So. Uh, <laughs> Nerds out reading the Peloponnesian War <laughs> every night. <laughs> Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> hey, thanks for coming back from Martha's Vineyard uh, to join us. Yes, that's right. That's exactly where I was. Got good photos, too. Yeah. All right. So for, for our first question for the podcast, for talking about the Peloponnesian War, and all of you touched on this a little bit in, in the lecture format, but let's kind of bat around the idea of the true cause of the war. And and Mike, we'll go ahead and start with you. Was it really fear, honor, interest in rising power of Athens, or do you think, what, what's your sense? Well, I think that's sort of true uh, in the sense that there were certain forces that were at work when the Greeks dealt with one another. Uh, each Greek city, uh, I think, saw honor as a very, very important uh, aspect of how they were viewed by the other, the other various Greek city-states, other polis. And in fact, there were these uh, principles that drove Greeks in their dealings with one another, with one another. One was the idea of um, ekthos, and the other was thonos. So it's kind of uh, hatred and envy. And part of this was based on they saw honor, like so many things, uh, as a zero-sum game. So if uh, if they lost some honor, that is, if let's say they had a friend or an ally who left their their group and went to someone else, that dinged their honor, and they could never get that back. So I think. Uh, honor, in particular, plays an important role in uh, in the way Greek city-states interact with one another. Um, certainly, you know, Thucydides uh, tells us, and I, I think uh, Josh made a good point, uh, that uh, our translation uh, has some issues about it. it, it you know, it's a, a 19th century translation. Uh, and so the idea that um, Thucydides admits by saying that the truest cause was just one of many. So there's not a single cause that, that really gets to it, that this is a whole bunch of things, and I think honor is one piece of it. Uh, the other thing I would point out when it comes to translations is when Thucydides gives his sort of trinity, if you will, he does put honor above uh, 
above fear. It's honor, fear, and interest, not fear, honor, interest. And it may or may not matter, but uh, to me, I think if, if you look at this, I, the, these paired concepts of, of uh, hatred and envy, that is, I hate you because uh, you've gotten one over on me and, and, and that just leads to greater envy and I have to somehow redress it. I think that is really all a subset of honor. I'll stop there. Okay, great. So, Mark, would you... Uh... Would you just you, you did talked about the concept of hatred in 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 your lecture. You think that's uh, think that's accurate, or is there other stuff to add? Well, everything I say is accurate, so I'm not going to do that. But look, we can get like 11th century monks and argue about how many angels you can fit at the tip of a of a needle, um, and we can get into all of the minutia here. But let let's understand it in terms of the broad framework. The international system, the way it was set up, made war the conditions for war more favorable. They did not make it inevitable. All of the factors played an incredibly important role in creating wars. So it was the individual decisions of Pericles, the arguments that um, Archidamus was unable to get the ephors to agree to. It was all of these things, as well as the the fear and the honor and the interest playing a role uh, in, the, in propelling this security dilemma that Athens and Sparta played, uh, you know, that we're having to play for. But there's also something very important, and I don't think we place enough emphasis on this, and that's the role of the Corinthians. You take the Corinthians out of this conflict, and you really have to ask yourself, does the war even begin? And are the Athenians and the Spartans sucked into a conflict because the Corinthians are inflaming the passions of both Sparta and Athens and causing all kinds of problems between uh, it's them and uh, Corsaira. So they're sucking the great powers into a war because they have grand ambitions of their own and war, in their viewpoint, is in their national interest. So all of these things play a role. And I don't really think it's constructive saying, well, is it honor, fear, or interest, or the structure of the international system. It's all of these things. Life is complicated. We have to deal with it. Okay. Good deal. Josh, we'll kick it over to you for your thoughts. No, I agree with Mark. I think if we look at this historically, then it is, it's all of these things. Um, the one thing I'll, you know, maybe throw out is I think that there's a little bit of a, um, maybe a, a kind of an elision there where we say, hey, you know, fear, honor, and interest, do we mean that specifically as these three things? I mean, you know, uh, Mike kind of talked about the, you know, intricacies of translation, or do we mean that to be kind of just the way the international system works? And I think that it might be, you know, again, as Mark said, a little bit of a uh, semantic argument to say, was it fear, was it honor, interest, or is it just kind of the nature of the international system? The one thing I'd like to add though is, you know, I think one of the things that can sometimes be confusing about this case is it's it's both a mashup of the history of the Peloponnesian War writ large, drawing out a lot of sources, and it's also Thucydides. And Thucydides is very clear. He says it's the growth of Athenian power um, and the fear this caused in Sparta. And even a little bit later, since I said, you know, early in book one, later in book one, he goes so far as to say that all the arguments from everybody that Sparta hears really don't convince them. It's still back to that fear. So I think while I totally agree with Mark that there are so many factors here, Thucydides clearly picks one and says this, you know, this is the most important reason. Okay. So is as a as a framework, then is the concept of redu is reducing it to fear, honor, interest 
too simplistic. Mark, why don't we why don't we start that one? With oh you? yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, and, and again, scholars and particularly political scientists try to take a complex world and simplify it into certain principles so that it's easily understood. Uh, and it creates kind of a theoretical framework. And that's exactly what the strategy and policy course tries to do. Uh, but we also have to recognize that everything is always more complex than we're giving it credit for. We also have to recognize that this book was written 2,400 years ago by someone who had an ax to grind. Um, and that we're never, you know, the, you talk about the fog of war in contemporary warfare. Well, the, think about the fog of history and how we don't really know all the facts. We just know a few sides from, from Herodotus and other great uh, uh, ancient historians, as well as Thucydides. So, I mean, we're playing with uh, viewpoints that aren't 100% pure. So we just got to make and extrapolate the best lessons we can from the information we have. Fair enough. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I would just I, I would agree that uh, you don't want to be reductionist here and, and reduce you know anything to some simple explanation. Uh, just a couple of things. One is, and I, I think this is important for our students to learn uh, or to think about is, there's a reason we pick historical case studies, and that is because we have to contextualize these things. We I could write any of us could write a strategy course in which all we did is taken we we take historical cases but we turn it into red and blue and decontextualize it. There's a danger in that. And I think we have learned that in the past, let's say 50 or 60 years, that when you don't know what's going on in a place or what motivates people, there's a danger. And so one of the things I would say uh, in terms of understanding why Greeks thought the way they did, why they were willing to take certain risks is, it is important to see what motivated them. And so that, that and I think that's what Thucydides is really getting at. He's talking about motives, honor, fear, interest. It's worth keeping those in mind because they may not be the same motives uh, for everyone at all times. So things may be weighted differently. So that that's uh, one thing. To Mark's point, uh, and I think to Josh's as well, we do really look at the Peloponnesian War here. And we have this question, I think, a lot when we talk about the case study is, is it a case study on Thucydides or is it a case study on the war? Because those would be two different ways of looking at things. Uh, we have lots of other sources. It's just, there's too much for us to try and read. This is true of every case study. There's so much we'd want to have the students read if they had time. And, and I, I think there are students who have said they'd like to do deeper dives. They'd rather do fewer cases deeper. Um, we would have a very different view if we looked at some of the other sources, because again, Thucydides often leaves us with just his opinion. And you know, as a historian, I, look, I want to look at everything I can. And there are other sources who give us different perspectives. So that, that's just worth noting, I think. So everybody mentioned in their lectures, you know, that this this concept of um, approximate and underlying causes of the war, and how you had these two rival leagues that were, you know, both had their grievances and they kept simmering, and there were a number of different flare-ups that happened that didn't necessarily lead to open conflict. But then finally, we had this—I uh, forget what you called it, say Mark—with the third-party, uh, third-party spoiler or whatever with uh, with with Epidamus and Corinth and Corsaira that really draw these these great powers into this conflict. And so, if if that was the drawing, why didn't it happen before with these with these other things? We'll, we'll go to you first, Mark. What do you think? Well, actually, I, I think Josh did a wonderful uh, uh, explanation of why it didn't happen. Um, also. Uh, I think that one of the key reasons is that it was in the interest of both the Athenians and the Spartans not to go to war. 
Uh, so even though Thucydides tells us the Athenians were growing and were much more dynamic, the Spartans were much, much more hesitant to go to war because of their peculiar institution, the enslavement of, of, of a large percentage uh, of their um, population, seven to one were the helots were outnumbered them. So their ability to project force was extraordinarily limited and dangerous. And the Indians knew this and kept trying to actually uh, ignite a, a helot rebellion and did so and to some extent once they uh, had captured Pylos. Uh, so the conservative Spartans were conservative um, in their projection of power because they had to be, because they're innately unstable domestic situation. Josh, any uh, any thoughts on that? No, I, I think that's interesting, you know, and I agree with Mark. I think that, you know, for a while, neither side had a real strong motivation to go to, you know, war. I think part of this is due, if we believe what the Corinthians say, just to potentially sort of the, the strategic culture, if we want to use that anachronistic term, of Athens and Sparta, you know, the, Sparta seems quite comfortable, um, you know, with their situation, whether that's out of instability, because they don't want to, you know, do anything that's going to upend that delicate balance, or just because they think this is how the world functions. And they're not, you know, reluctant to use power because of uh, any sort of concern, but just they, they don't think of it that way, that more just like they've got what they need and there's no need to uh, get any more. Whereas Athens, again, if you believe the Corinthians, thinks the opposite, that, you know, there's always something more uh, to, to, you know, be done. So, you know, one, you know, city is happy to stay at rest. The other one has to be in motion. Um, and so it's as much due to, you know, internal factors as it is due to characteristics. And I think this gets to what uh, Mike was talking about, Thucydides. Thucydides has, you know, the Corinthian make this comparison very clearly but again, we, we don't know. Um, it could be just as likely that the Spartans weren't, you know, lazy, you know, kind of content people, but rather, like Mark said, they just couldn't go away for fear of um, internal security uh, falling apart. So I, I think it's hard to say. I, I don't know the answer to that question. So they do make the decision to go to war. Both states make the decision to go to war, but then they don't fight in the traditional Greek way. Mike, this strategy by Pericles to not come out and face the, the Spartan army mono and mono, phalanx to phalanx, was this kind of unique in terms of, uh, you know, an, an innovative approach? Oh, yeah, I think this is really an important uh, thing to think about. And I think it, it has a, a reflection of the question you just asked earlier about, uh, you know, the, the Spartans and why, you know, why should they be afraid? I, we know uh, from, again, another source, Diodorus, that in 478, the, the Spartans sat down and said, should we let the Athenians even form a Delian League? Because in 478, there were no long walls. If they had marched down to Athens, they could have dictated terms and the Athenians would have been in problem. There would have been no ability to have the sort of Periclean uh, strategy. So um, they, they made a choice to not do that because I think the assumption they had was, and I, I alluded to this a little bit in my lecture today, is if you look at sort of the history, even through the first Peloponnesian War, the Athenians don't do well on land. They're just not a threat to Sparta. And I think Sparta said, they're not a threat. So, you know, the growth of power doesn't affect us directly. What I don't think they were thinking about is how it affects their allies, especially Corinth, who had this idea of being uh, an, a rival commercial power. Or, uh, again, you know, uh, uh, some of the things that we see, and I think uh, Josh mentioned this in his lecture, 
uh, one of the, the demands is about uh, storing Egina. Well, Egina is another rival commercial power. So there's all of this playing out um, that I, I think informed the decision to, uh, to go to war. But Pericles' strategy is, uh, is really innovative, but it's also very difficult for him to do because uh, you know, it, it's a great strategy in that it does uh, work what the Spartans want, a decisive battle. But as we know at the beginning of book two, um, there are Athenians who, who, who are, are really upset with not going out to fight. Even if they think they might lose, it's like, hey, we got to go out and do this. You know, we can't let them uh, be right outside our walls, stomping on our, our grapevines and, and all of that. We have to do something. And I think it's a testament to Pericles as a leader that he is able to do this. Uh, I think part of the reason why Cleon uh, makes uh, some sort of shift in strategy is he's not that guy. Um, and I, I think he, he recognizes he can't he won't be able to have the um, uh, the influence that Pericles had to make that work. So he has to come up with an alternative. Interesting. So there were at least a few Athenians that had some honors. No, that's yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, good, Josh, go ahead. No, I just want to jump in. This kind of popped into my head, I, uh, inspired by Mike's comment. I think one of the things that, you know, if we believe Sparta is so different from other places, is that Sparta maybe has a different idea of what constitutes power or what constitutes interest. And it's really hard for them to see that maybe the, the world has shifted. You know, we're going to talk in a few weeks about the American Revolution and how, you know, by the end of that, Britain sees that, you know, it's not about mercantilism and colonies, it's about free trade. And I think in a similar way, again, this is pretty anachronistic, but from 479 to 431, you know, power in, you know, the ancient Greek world has shifted from military power to commercial power. And Athens is definitely on the forefront of this. And then some Spartan allies like Corinth, uh, and some other, you know, cities are, are are more along this route. Sparta isn't, and I think that's hard for them to understand that, you know, things have changed, and some people might care more about this than they do, uh, because all of a sudden, uh, their idea that Athens can't march down here because they don't have a big army, therefore they're not a threat, um, changes between 479 you know, and 431, and, and that growth, even if it's not, you know, land power growth uh, of power, uh, does become a concern. Hmm. So, go ahead, Mark. Uh, I mean, I, Josh brings up a really good point. I love the way he stated it in terms of commercial power uh, superseding, to some extent, uh, military power. Uh, and you, we, our students have to remember that you can never divorce the two, that you don't have military power unless you have substantial commercial power. Um, there's another aspect that we really kind of glossed over, and that's the role of Persia. One of the reasons Athens and Sparta don't want to go to war is, you know, Persia's looming like a colossus uh, to the east. Um, and that is the existential threat to both Athens and Sparta. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting, it not only explains the reluctance of the city-states of Sparta and Athens not to go to war, but it explains how the security dilemma actually makes them inherently irrational, knowing that going to war with one another, going to war between Sparta and Athens will only redound to the benefit of Persia. And the only one that's smart enough to get this is Archidamus, who says, wait a minute here, unless you get a navy, this is just going to be a war that goes on for generations, and it's going to weaken both of us. Um, and it's essentially what happens. Uh, so we can never lose sight of the fact that even though we try to look at this as a bipolar world, it's not. It's a multipolar world. And in many ways, Persia is the big hegemon, not Athens or Sparta. 
So it's that's probably a good segue. It you all of all of you in your lectures had at one point or another mentioned you know off ramps, right? Talking about war termination. There were there were times when peace could have been potentially achieved because one side or the other actually goes to their adversary and offers peace. And the first one that happens is right after the disaster for the Spartans at Pylos, and it 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 doesn't work. It fails. Uh, so. You know why is it so difficult to conduct war termination in this war? Uh, and, and just you know, starting with the Pylos example, Mike, why don't we why don't we start with you on that question? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question, and my answer would be uh, in part um, almost Clausewitzian, uh, or certainly uh, Michael Handel-esque, in the sense that uh, when you're winning, you don't want to give up the advantage. I mean, it's just natural. It's like, hey, I'm winning, so why would I stop? Uh, it's it's always, of course, the side who has suffered some sort of defeat. Had the Spartans not lost those 300 people, I mean, if they had not been taken prisoner, let's say they had done the sort of Leonidas-type uh, die to the last man, I don't think there would have been, that would have been a blow to the Spartans, but it would not have forced them to go and ask for terms. Uh, they would have had to make up manpower in another way. It would have been, uh, again, a serious blow, but it would not be the same as uh, if you move, we'll kill the hostages. And I think that really affects what uh, Sparta thinks it can do it, and it wants to have a reset, some kind of pause. It needs to get those people back. And the point that Josh made is they're willing to sell out their allies to get these guys back. Um, so again, in, in terms of power relationships, uh, Sparta is all about what's good for Sparta here <laughs> rather than what's good for the alliance. They're, they're certainly cognizant of the fact that they need to keep the league together, especially with what Athens has done in creating the dealing league. So I think, and we see this in the Ionian War, there are a couple of times where uh, peace overtures are made, but uh, the winning side just says, "Why would I? Why would I give in now?" So I think that's that's really the underlying problem is this idea of a principle of continuity. I have the other guy on the ropes. I'm not going to go and give up my advantage. So that brings up an interesting point about the tension of the Clausewitz and concepts of uh, culminating point of victory right. versus principle of continuity, and 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 there's a number of them here. And you know, Josh, what do you think? Is there is there a, is there multiple, uh, you know, uh, culminating points of, of victory for, for each side in this? Because it's so kind of back and forth or? Well, I think one of the big problems is you know, that Mike hit on the head is, you know, people think that as good as things are right now, they can maybe get better. And what makes this challenging is I think we, we sometimes tend to think of these, you know, cities as monolithic and that Athens has goals and Sparta has goals. And I think, you know, within each there are factions that want you know, more grandiose or less grandiose goals. And as a result, depending on who's in power or who's able to, you know, sway the assembly in Athens, um, while goals might very well have been reached, if the, you know, the people and, you know, the demagogues are feeling more aggressive, then it's easy to present that as, hey, we're not quite there yet. Uh, and so by lacking kind of aims, it's not, sometimes I think it's not so much that people want more, but there's almost no, you know, uh, you know, definite place to stop, uh, and there's always a little bit more uh, you can get. I mean, Thucydides kind of, you know, cast this as an Athenian characteristic: uh, is that everybody uh, in Athens is grasping for more, and this is some sort of, uh, you know, cultural trait. I think what's interesting is this even goes all the way to the end of the war. So at the end, you know, after uh, Aegispotami and Athens is on the ropes, you know, for real they make a, a series of concessions. And again, Sparta, 
at this point does the same thing. They're like, nope, we can get some more. And they end up getting everything they want. So, I mean, it almost begs the question, you know, was everybody wrong to not take an off-ramp before if in the end holding out for exactly, you know, what you want, your maximum aim was successful? Hmm. Mark, thoughts uh, thoughts on that one? Well, it, this is a great discussion because one of the focus of this uh, of the of the course itself is the tension between rationality and irrationality, and not just between on the battlefield with the fog of war and the passions of war. It's also back home as well, and there's a lot of strategic pathologies that we can extrapolate from this case study. Um, yeah, I, I'm, this is going to make Mike's head spin, so it's going to be really fun for me to say. Um, I think honor is one of the most overrated aspects to the Peloponnesian War. Um, and here's why. Look at the Spartans. They're all about honor. They're all about the macho. You know, you come home victorious or on your shield. So what do these wussies do when the kids of the leadership of Sparta get captured by the Athenians? They immediately capitulate and they say, oh, 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 we can't lose junior. We have to uh, sue for peace. Well, what the hell happened to your honor there, Spark boy? I mean, what's going on here? There's, you know, you're throwing your honor away and you're actually undercutting your credibility with your alliance uh, 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 allies uh, by doing so. And yet they do it. I think in the end, it's about passion. It's about careerism of the leadership. Um, it's about, hey, I got this and it's glorious, but I can go even for more glory. Um, and it's this need for leaders, particularly in, in ancient Greece, where unlike the United States, where you fail, you write a biography and you make millions of dollars. In Greece, you know, you get kicked out of the city state or, or executed. Um, so the stakes are much higher. And that's why they're always going and grasping for more. And that's why they always pass their come landing point of victory, consistently pass their uh, come landing point of victory, because they're like little MacArthur's. You know, they're letting their passion and their ego get in the way of rational decision making. Um, so I would say that it's a weakness of the trinities of both Sparta and Athens knowing that the stakes are so high because all they're doing is empowering Persia in this long battle, that they don't take the reasonable, rational approach and stop when they have the advantage and have gotten, as, as Josh had said earlier, maybe not their maximum goals, but sufficient goals. Yeah. Mike, we'll go to you for reaction. Yeah, my head was spinning there, Mark. So <laughs> uh, you made my day. <laughs> a couple of things. I, I do think, uh, you know, again, while this may not be Klaus, it, it's certainly not Clausewitzian. One of the things that's playing out here is both sides are looking at sort of their sunk costs, right? What they have put into it. And that's that's maybe not, you know, if you actually set a value of the object, once you reach uh, that value, you should say, I'm done, whether I've got what I want or not. That that doesn't happen here. And again, you, one can see how you might be driven after, let's say, Sicily. It's like, how do I give up? anything after Sicily. I have to make something up. Uh, as to Spartan honor, I, I, I do think the Spartans would have actually argued, and in fact, there's a, a, a quick passage in Thucydides where one of the Spartans who was captured said, they didn't fight honorably, right? They, they're just hurling arrows and slings. So I, I think that's they a, a whole new way of fighting wars, which is not the way we fight wars. And that's, that, that's not, I don't know if it's honorable, but there was something about you know, gee, if an, ar an arrow can't distinguish between a coward and a brave man. So uh, I, I do think there's this, um, 
I, I get what Mark was saying, but I do think that there's also uh, a sense of um, pragmatism uh, and, uh, uh, you know, in, involved. And certainly the Spartans are going to be uh, able to themselves pick up on the new way of war uh, as the war goes on. So kind of like saying we'll have honor rep until the point where we start to lose, and then at that point it becomes too uh, too expensive of a. <laughs> well, and I, again, I think the Greeks did not see any single war or conflict as the final solution to a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Greeks see history as a cycle, so it's like okay, look at the beginning of the war. Argos and Sparta have been, had fought. Argos lost and said, okay, I'll take twenty or thirty years here, and I will rebuild my army, yeah. and I'll be back. I will come back, and I'll go at him again. So honor is something that you can turn the heat down, put it on simmer, and come back later. Um, and again, if there's a good pragmatic reason to do that, I mean, uh, I, I can see how that, that would have affected their uh, their calculus. A very Clausewitzian approach. In, you know, war is really- Final result is never final. Yeah. That's right. Josh, we'll, uh, we'll go to you for a reaction to... Yeah, I was just going to suggest something. And Mark's comments made me think of this, um, talking about rationality and irrationality. And I like this as kind of an alternate, you know, big takeaway, you know, thematically than fear, honor, and interest. And that's the sort of tension between justice and expediency, or sometimes necessity, uh, on the other hand. And I think this really um, can help explain why, you know, people make decisions they do. You know, we're talking about Spartan honor. And I think one of the things the Spartans are good at is being very rational, even when some of these, you know, maybe more personal motivations are at stake. I don't think it's a bad decision for them to cut everybody else loose to achieve their goal uh, to get, you know, the Spartiates back from Athens. And similarly, at the end of um, the war, I mean, they cut Ionia loose to, uh, you know, ensure Persian support. And I think it speaks to that, you know, kind of tension between that, you know, justice, sort of the right thing to do. Um, and expediency, kind of the smart thing to do. And by getting this right, um, or getting it right more often than the Athenians do, I think the Spartans are more rational. So maybe it's not the right thing to do um, to sell out Ionia. It's the smart thing to do because it's going to get them the, you know, the means they need to execute their strategy. Athens, on the other hand, especially later in the war as their leadership degrades and their kind of, you know, decision making the government falls apart. I think that's where their ir- irrationality can be traced to both these. They do things that are both wrong and stupid. You know, executing the generals after Argonusi is wrong because it wasn't their fault, like a storm blew up. It's also very stupid because now they don't have any generals left. And so I think that if you look at those as two forces in tension rather than sort of three, you know, motivations that can, you know, work together a crosscut, you can see it, it helps explain rationality and irrationality. And the Athenians have this great quote about the Spartans from the uh, Melian dialogue. They say the Spartans are very fond of saying the things that work well for them are just, um, and, the, and you know the things that don't are unjust. Uh, so I think Spartan honor uh, it can be pretty practical uh, at times. Well, you know, so, one of the things to to, to uh, jump onto what Josh said is one of the lessons, the endearing lessons of Thucydides, is that the longer the war goes on the more savage both sides become and the less of a firm grip they have on rationality and the more willing they are to relinquish their principles. Um, And that's an enduring lesson, not just of what happens to democracies, but what happens to all city states in protracted warfare. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I think that this is where, again, that characterization that Corinthians come up with of the Spartans being sort of more moderate uh, really rings true because at the end, 
they pull back all the way. I mean, Corinth is telling them, you know, to just destroy Athens. And they say, nope, we're just going to, you know, tear down the long walls and we're going to, you know, uh, restrict the Athenian Navy. So even though everything has escalated up to that point, I think this is another example of the Spartans using that sort of moderation um, that Thucydides identifies in them to come back to a rational decision. Again, this one maybe isn't smart because later Athens kind of reconstitutes and poses a big threat to Sparta, but it, you can't argue it's it, it's wrong. Um, but that's their maximum aims, Jane, uh, Josh, right? Their aims at the outset were tearing down the walls and the dissolution of the Dalian League. And they got both of those maximum aims. The fact that they didn't go beyond those aims, I think, bespeaks in, in part to you to their to their wisdom um, or their moderation, but they certainly had achieved what they had set out to achieve. No, absolutely. Oh, they're, 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 oh sorry, Josh. As I say, the rhetoric though was free the Greeks. And to Josh's point, they were happy to sell the Ionians out. But again, uh, there's a, a an episode during uh, when the Spartans are laying siege to uh, Methemna there on Lesbos, and and one of their allies gets in and attacks some Persians, and they said, look. I know that this is not palatable, but we'll address this later, right? Once we've beaten Athens, that's the goal, beat Athens, you know, get what we want. We can come back and beat the Spartans. Again, I think the Spartans thought we can beat the Persians whenever we want to. The Persians are not, you know, they have money and, and all of this, but when, it, when push comes to shove, we beat them at Plataea and we can beat them again. But the free the Greek thing was a canard, Michael. What's free that? the Greeks had, they had no intention of freeing Greeks, particularly helots. They're only that that was a was a uh, a soundbite, uh, a disinformation campaign that was focused on freeing the members of the Dalian League. It didn't have anything to do with freeing Greeks broadly. It was a wonderful I.O. campaign. Well, helots don't count as actual Greeks, right? Yeah, I mean, they're helots, that's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> I think, John, I know you're joking, but I think you have a point is I, I, I kind of disagree with Mark on this one. I don't think this is. I think this is a great soundbite, but I don't think it's meant, uh, you know, as somehow this, you know, hey, free the Greeks, except for the helots, wink, wink. I mean, I, I think they, they do want this, uh, the empire dismantled. I think they know that there are a lot of subjects of the Athenians who are eager for, you know, a message like this. So I don't think it's quite that disingenuous. I think that Sparta later kind of has to realize that, you know, maybe following through with this to the letter uh, is not going to be the best, um, you know, path for them. And I think, again, that speaks to their rationality, that they're able to kind of triangulate that and come up with not a great solution, certainly not from the Ionian point of view, but a solution um, that allows them to keep going and accomplish their aims. And just to round up what Mark was saying, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that it's, it speaks again to that, you know, Spartan moderation rationality even though they've achieved their aims up until this point we've seen just escalation on top of escalation and you know as Klaus would said you know when you know the cost exceeds the value of the object walk away this is kind of a variation on that but once you've achieved your aims they walk away there's nothing more they need to do and I, I think that speaks to their rationality and moderation so pulling pulling on a couple of threads because this is an interesting one it speaks to course theme number one in terms of you know policy strategy match and I like how in your lecture, Josh, you kind of made this whole like minimum maximum aim. Is there a danger in not, you know, clearly articulating, knowing if you're if you're going if your power are going to war, exactly what you are trying to do in terms of this this you know this concept of well we want to go for this but we really want to accept. Is there a danger in having this sliding scale of aims, political aims? 
Well, I, so uh, full credit, I totally got this from Carl Walling uh, in his article in the Naval War College Review. And I don't know enough about other sources. Um, th this might just be our way of, of kind of putting you know this in the terms of the course. It's really hard to see, um, at least kind of writ large in Thucydides, why people are doing things. Uh, very often you'll get Thucydides giving you a leader um, saying why they're doing it, but then you always have to ask the question, is this really why they're doing it, or is this leader trying to sell this a certain way? You know, Alcibiades um, repping for the uh, Sicilian expedition comes to mind. Only time I can think where Thucydides says this is what they were going to do and why uh, comes in book five when he talks about the Battle of Antonea and he lists Athenian objectives. Athens thought that if they were to win this battle, they would keep Sparta out of invading, they would break Spartan land power and accomplish these things. But it's really hard to find another example of that. So I don't know if that means they didn't know, if they weren't monolithic, if it depended on the leader, or we're just trying to impose kind of a, a modern you know, policy strategy construct on something the Greeks wouldn't have thought of that way. Mm. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I'm with Josh on this. I, I, I think it's hard sometimes to, we're trying to infer their uh, their their aims from their actions. And that that may not be, you know, the best way to do it. Um, so like, as I think Josh put it, the minimum age was, uh, aim was to placate the allies. I, I think that makes sense, given the fact that the allies are, are seeming, you know, disgruntled. They, they say they might look elsewhere for their security interests, that kind of thing. I'm not sure that's an aim, though, so much as uh, a necessity, right? I have to do something for the allies. I think the aim really is pretty clear that what they want to do is they want to dissolve the league, that that, that is really what they're trying to do. And, you know, again, to maybe counter Mark here, the, 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 the Spartans are, uh, again, they are people of their word. After the, the Peloponnesian War is over, they go all in in campaigning in Asia Minor trying to free some of those Greeks. Uh, uh, Agisileus, the next Spartan king, is out there trying to do it, and he fails. I mean, he doesn't have, you know, he he lost his source of money to have an expeditionary campaign uh, um, that would have been successful. So uh, I agree with uh, with Josh here on on it's difficult. Uh, Carl had a very, um, I, I think he internalized a, in a way that was good a lot of the course ideas, uh, but then he tried to again infer that from things that may not be. You know, if we could magically bring some of these people back and question them, I often think, wouldn't it be great if I could talk to Clausus for an hour? <laughs> It'd probably clear up a lot of the uh, things I, I often wrestle with in him. Uh, and I think it'd be the same with if we could talk to Pericles. I, I really think, although Thucydides hated him, Cleon was had a lot of these ideas in his head somewhere. And I think he's interesting because he's, he's tied to this man, Demosthenes. And so, you know, it's an interesting Civ Mill thing. You got the, the civilian... Uh, guy who has a policy thing and then you have the guy who's going to execute it and they both have their thing uh, and uh, their realm uh, Demosthenes is the first in what is a whole series of people in the next 50 years I, I think it's really the beginning of military professionalism we see emerging uh, in Greece in the, uh, especially in the 390s 400 down into the 390s and 380s people making military reforms and other things so uh, it, it's really interesting, and I don't know that I have a good answer other than uh, I think there's a lot of inference there. Fair enough. Mark, any, any uh, thoughts? Or? Well, my beloved colleagues are, alas, <laughs> somewhat naive. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the way the Spartans are operating here, 
it's it's too it's too expedient for them to call for freeing the Greeks and to think that they had this grand vision of freeing Greeks uh, from all oppressive conquerors. Um, it is in they are acting in their interest in the short term and the long term because they do not want a strong uh, city state to rise up and create another Dalian League. Um, so they are being very self interested in how they do this. And it's just a clever soundbite. I'd like to impugn more pure motives into the Spartans. But given what they did uh, for their own kids, they were always out for number one. And any kind of grand, wonderful, idealistic, uh, you know, aims on their part is just that naivete. It's seriously, it's about the Spartans. It's always been about the Spartans. It will always be about the Spartans and protecting their peculiar institution. That's why we love having Mark here because he always gives us the colorful opinion. Josh, the uh, super nerdy uh, response. Yeah, it will be super nerdy. So I will just point out, I know Mike will appreciate this. So the the line from Thucydides in book one that we usually render as free the Greeks. Uh, in our translation, it's let the Hellenes be independent. In the Greek, it says, uh, it uses the word, uh, you know, uh, our equivalent is autonomy. And so it's not talking about freedom in a personal sense, but freedom in a political, um, more of a political sense. So I think that that's where I, I don't see the parallel between, and I don't think the Greeks would have seen it either, between you know, Sparta's behavior you know, externally and then internally. But I think that's a really interesting contrast because we see that there's very different societies internally uh, in Athens and Sparta, but their alliance structures are almost the mirror opposite. So you have you know, kind of a more open liberal Athens uh, with a more coercive, closed alliance system, and, and, and Sparta is the opposite. So I promised, I won't promise, but hopefully that'll be the last uh, translation thing uh, I have to know about. <laughs> Mike, what do you think? Yeah, just uh, I, I think there is a danger when you hear terms like free the Greeks to think in modern terms like Greece the country. Ancient people did not think that way. There were there were Spartans and there were Athenians and Corinthians and Aegeanetans and all these other folks. And each of them had uh, certain things that made them Greek culturally. And one of them was living in a polis. So the, the point about the Helots is the Helots were by the very nature of their status, no longer Greek. They didn't have a polis anymore. Just like uh, the Macedonians were no longer Greek in the sense, or were not Greek because they had a king. Uh, the Persians weren't Greek. They lived, they had a different uh, context. So um, I think what they're saying uh, to um, Josh's point, this is about autonomy for cities. You shouldn't have anybody, you know, lording over you like the Athenians were. I mean, we lord over. We're the lords of the the Peloponnesian League, but look how we treat them. We let them vote with their feet. They don't have to send troops to us. We we have a, a commitment. But if it's like NATO, if they don't send the troops, it's like I'm not going to go and force them. I'm not the Warsaw Pact. So I do think there is a. Again, this is where that. You know, it's not a red team and a blue team. There's a little bit of an understanding this why people did what they did, uh, looking at their worldview. I think you can encapsulate it by saying the Spartans did what was in their interest to do so. Yeah. Um, and they would not have called for more autonomy or freeing the Greeks or whatever you want to, whatever words you want to parse. Um, they were acting in their interest and only in their interest. They had little care about the 
creating an autonomous situation because their only concern was destroying a daily lead. We can argue about the wording, and the problem with you people is you know too much about this stuff. If you are a super <laughs> political scientist, you'd see the big picture, and the big picture is they're only acting in their national interest, and that's it. End of the well, speaking of, speaking of national interest, that's probably a good segue to kind of take the Peloponnesian War, which is, you know, this uh, this millennia old conflict, and kind of talk about what it what it teaches us in the contemporary realm. Um, so, Mark, today you mentioned the uh, Graham Allison's book. This is the Thucydides trap, and how rising powers are naturally going to go to war with uh, um, our status quo power is going to go to war with rising powers. Um, does are we are we applying this? without any any thinking about national interests to to china or to russia are we just taking this this blanket concept and going oh well we're going to go to war with china because it's a rising power and that's the way that graham Allison said it's going to happen mark we'll start with you this is one of the conundrums of history we can learn so much and it's such a critical thing for strategists to study history uh but it history is not determinative history offers us some broad lessons but we oftentimes think, well, if it happened in the past, it shall happen now. This is the idea of inevitability, the psychological need of human beings to just take simplistic analogies and applying them to today. And that's what Graham Allison does. Uh, and I'm going to say something that's shocking because I'm actually going to say something uh, uh, nice about Xi Jinping. The leader of, Xi Jinping, uh, of China, Xi Jinping, reads the book and says, this is actually a dangerous book that Individuals make decisions about where, about whether or not to go to war, and that there's nothing about the structure of international politics that makes war inevitable. And again, it goes back to one of the things I was trying to say in the lecture today, that the conditions set the stage, right? But the individuals make the decisions. So the environment makes it more or less likely that war might break out, but it is not determinative. And that's important for all of our students and even more important for our political and military leaders uh, to understand that. that uh, uh, political science, I mean, diplomacy is about options, not creating false uh, dichotomies where you have no choice but to go to war. Mm. Interesting. Mike, response on that? Yeah, I, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I kind of agree with Mark uh, on this point. Uh, I'm so much that, smaller now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I do think that, and, and here again, this is where I'll, I'll, I'll go back on uh, the context is important. Just because uh, Sparta eventually real, you know, the, the Greeks viewed things differently. They didn't understand principles like capitalism. Capital can be created, that it's not, uh, you know, a, it's not like when you're dealing with gold and silver and specie, that there's only so much of it in the world and therefore values are sort of fixed or whatever. Um, so just because Athens and Sparta uh, went to war, and again, uh, I think it was Josh's point that, that the, the the Spartans felt compelled to go to war. In other words, they looked at the circumstance and said, "We feel we have to go to war." And again, it goes to Mark's point of it's somehow in their interest, uh, uh, however you want to define that. So, I, uh, I, I guess the my takeaway is this is what happens when you uh, arm political scientists with history, then they don't have the depth. You end up with these sort of superficial models that that are not very helpful. Uh, because you're again, you're you're decontextualizing things, and even in his model that he he uh, he picked and he picked, cherry picks the case studies, even then it's not a hundred percent. 
uh, of the 16 cases, I think only 12 of them actually lead to war. Now, again, okay, 75%, that, that's statistically significant, uh, but uh, it, you really have to look at, and, and to Mark's point, you have to look at all these things in their setting, I think, and say, okay, don't, don't, history is not going to repeat itself here. We do not have to, do, you know, we don't have to feel compelled just because China is building a navy uh, and, and all of that. It's not the same. It's, it's a different uh, situation than what the Athenians and the, and the Spartans say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Josh, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to really blow everybody's mind. I'm going to agree with Mark, Mike, and Xi Jinping on this one. I think <laughs> the quote I love from Xi says, there's no such thing as a Thucydides trap, but there's a Thucydides trap trap. And I think that speaks to you know what Mark and Mike are talking about, this idea that because it was written or because we see it in history, it somehow is going to repeat itself again uh, exactly as it went the first time. And I think I said I was only going to nerd out once, but I'm going to nerd out again. Um, you know, the idea that the, the war is inevitable, I, I think the, the translation that we should be using is that the growth of Athenian power and the fear of this cause of Sparta compelled the Spartans to go to war. Mm. And I think Thucydides says that as a fact. He doesn't offer any judgment on it. And so we're left to interpret with so was that right for them to go to war or was that wrong um and was that a dumb decision and maybe that's the lesson we want to take out of this is not that oh it's inevitable under these circumstances and rising powers you know will cause uh you know kind of declining powers to go to war but rather this is what compelled them to do this if we think this is a bad decision or this is a decision we don't want to repeat we should like mark said make sure we open back up that aperture so we we don't feel or china doesn't feel or whomever you know we want to use in contemporary art doesn't feel compelled uh to do that because at the end of the day if the word he uses is compulsion you know that's a that's a personal or you know a, at a state level or at a per, individual leader level it's a choice um you feel compelled uh, versus you are you know versus something's inevitable hey john so, this is one of the reasons why we look at uh, political psychology. I mean, we don't do enough in this course, I think, on political psychology. And one of the reasons I use that term premature cognitive uh, dis- uh, dissidence is, is the idea that you are falsely creating um, an idea that you are compelled to do something. So, you know, we can talk about the language of it, if it's inevitable or is it compelling, but it's the same psychological uh, pathology that you're seeing that you don't have choices when you're ignoring really viable options that you shouldn't be. And that's that tension between rationality and irrationality. So so pulling on that a little bit, if if one of the things we talked about in the in the beginning of this was how those, you know, those third parties kind of pulled these two alliance systems into war, you know, uh, talking about what was happening with with Epidamus and, and Corsaira. Is there a lesson to be extrapolated that in terms of what's going on right now? in Ukraine with, you know, Russia attacks Ukraine and here we are kind of, you know, supplying the Ukrainians and, and whatnot is, would would a study of the Peloponnesian War say maybe, hey, we we ought to not be doing this and, and staying out of that because it could pull us into a conflict? What do you think? We'll start, Mike, with you on that one. Well, you know, again, I, I wouldn't take any of the cases that we have in the course and try and, and translate it to uh, current situations. What I think what the course hopes to do is to arm students with a lot of these case studies, which is why we do such a broad spectrum of history and say, OK, is there something about what, ha- what the decisions people made in the Peloponnesian War that might help me think about this? 
So again, we're not trying to tell them what to think or to come to a conclusion or uh, any of this. It's like, okay, I, I have a whole bunch of, of uh, data in my data set and I, I can kind of just think my way through it. Um, so, you know, is there something directly from the Peloponnesian War that, that is going to help someone uh, come up with a solution for you know, Russia and Ukraine? I don't think so. I, I, you know, I, I don't think those things are directly related. But it's going to give me a lot of ways to look at, well, you know, I, I can look at it and say, gee, I'm not sure they had, you know, they had a realistic strategy. They were going for a QDV and the other side managed to, to thwart them, much as the Athenians thwart the Spartan efforts for a QDV. Uh, quick decisive victory. So I, I think there are things of value you can take out. Uh, and I, But again, I, I don't like to push these things too far. I like to arm students with all the things they need to think about things very broadly and, and draw on uh, not just any one thing, but on a, on a variety of things. Josh, thoughts on that one? No, I mean, um, I think it's hard not to try to take current situations and apply them not just to this case but to any case I think that's inevitably uh, you know gets done you know the thing that strikes me and this goes back to a point I made earlier is if we if we want to look at you know a lesson we can you know draw out of this uh, at the strategic level I think that you know if we look at sort of rational decision making and that justice versus you know necessity or expediency I mean I think that you know, you see this tension in what the U.S. is doing and how it's trying to calibrate its, you know, response to Moscow and its support to, you know, Kyiv, um, is to maybe sometimes do something that's very right uh, and sometimes do something that's very smart and try to balance those two uh, because I think that's why you hear, you know, Ukraine potentially asking for more support and the U.S. reluctant to give it because they're trying really hard, even though it doesn't feel great, to do something that's smart and practical for NATO and for de-escalation. Uh, and on the other side, you can see them doing something, you know, that's pretty right um, in sanctions and some of these economic policies that we are kind of feeling, you know, the pain from. So it might not be super smart, but man, finding that balance is so hard. And I think, you know, if the lesson we can get out of this is that it's really hard to find that balance and it requires constant kind of reassessment and sometimes doing things we're not feeling great about, but that we can always justify it as, going towards an aim. And I know I sound like a realist there, so Mark's super happy. Um, but I think that if you can balance it in a way where you don't feel like you're selling out, and importantly, that your allies don't feel like you've sold them out, like occasionally Sparta's allies do, I think you've really um, internalized something that's important about this. And this is what successful leaders and successful states do, is they balance these two things in a way that allows them to achieve their aims without becoming you know, pariahs or allyless. Interesting. Mark. Well, first, I want you to note that there's kind of like a halo surrounding me. Um, so uh, I need to take my points a little more seriously than the other two. Um, but look, I, I actually agree with everything that Michael uh, and Josh said. Look, our job is to provide students with an intellectual arsenal so that when they're looking at contemporary politics, they don't have the answers, but they have the right questions that can help them lead to the answers. Uh, and this is the construct. So when people say, okay, what can I extrapolate from the Peloponnesian War? You can ex extrapolate thousands of lessons. And it's the questions that we're giving you. And it's the assessment of how does the security dilemma play? What is it, the individual uh, questions, the individual mistakes made by the leaders, or is there something more compelling about that? And you're asking them, look, 
you know, are you is the United States uh, passing its covenanting point of victory in arming the Ukrainians? Is it going to spill over the law of unintended consequences? That great line from the Athenians you just happens to happen to be there uh, when the uh, Spartans are debating, and he says, "Hey, look, never ever." Under, uh, mis, uh, uh, underestimate or underestimate uh, the power of chant, the chance plays and the outcome of conflicts. You know, and it, this law of unintended consequences mean you may, it may be the right thing to arm the Ukrainians. It may be the right thing to continue to arm the Ukrainians, but what are the potential consequences that we haven't foreseen? Is this gonna embolden China? Is this gonna put Putin on a death ground politically? and make him act more ruthlessly than he otherwise would have? Or are we standing up for a principle that is so important that the international system must fight back, that NATO has to be a bulwark against these aggressive acts on the part of Putin? But also remember that Putin is the president of a power that is in real decline. And those are the most dangerous powers in international politics. And that's, one, again, one of the lessons that history can show us. So it's all about asking the right questions, not saying, well, A is to be like it is today. And it's just not the case. It's to give them the information and the questions they need to make rational decisions more likely rather than less. Great points. So why don't we end on a, on a final, uh, final thoughts about the Peloponnesian War. And this will be a hard question to answer for both uh, Josh and Mike. But if you had to neck down the key takeaway that you'd want everyone to know about the Peloponnesian War, what would it be? What's your, what's your key takeaway? Josh, we'll start with you. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> so for me, uh, this, like, this sounds so corny. Um, you know when you write a, a college, you know, application. I don't know. If, maybe they don't write college application essays anymore. I have no idea. Oh, well, they do. I wrote they do. them. Yeah. Um, you know, the question like, name a book that changed your life. And at seventeen, I really didn't have a book in mind. I can honestly say this book changed my life, um, and it changed my life in a couple of key reasons, or for a couple of key reasons. One, that idea of proximate and ultimate causes really has stuck with me, uh, and I, you know, I use that to try to figure out not just you know history, but just kind of the world around me. And I like the idea, even though maybe we talked a lot about Thucydides' bias and what he leaves in and what he leaves out, but the idea that if I know enough, I can figure out why something happened. And I can separate you know, a pretext from a proximate cause from the ultimate cause. So kind of you know, the wheat from the chaff. And the idea that you can do that, um, not just with history, but with anything, I think is important for, for us as national security professionals, that you can figure this stuff out um, you know, if you have the information and you think about it hard enough and, and, and you, you know, you care about finding a solution. Um, other thing I will just say again, I know I've said it a couple of times, the first time I read this, uh, my professor told me the whole, the, the theme of the work is justice versus expediency. And after reading this a bunch of times since then and reading articles and books about it, I still think that's true. Um, I think that it's about finding that balance. Um, and I think Thucydides illustrates this in perfectly in you know, some of his debates and dialogues. And I think the end of the war, even though he didn't get to write about it, I think that if he had, um, the, the conclusion would bear out that theme. Good deal. Mark, what do you think? Well, my big takeaway is to bathe your kids in wine as soon as they're born <laughs> and leave them up. <laughs> 
that and uh, the send your son to the Agoge at age seven. That uh... <laughs> and the multiple uses of olive oil. Um, those are my takeaways. Like I actually agree a lot with what Josh said. Um, I was reading more magazines than books at seventeen, and I won't tell you what kind. Uh, but this book uh, had a tremendous impact on me. I was uh, uh, at a Catholic university at the time where morals actually meant something, not like University of Michigan. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it was that justice versus expediency um, aspect to it that really makes you think about, you know, not only the place of nation states, but the place of in the role of individuals um, in, in making decisions. So I, mean, I think that's a, that's a great takeaway. Good deal. Mike, we'll end with you. I think my biggest is, and it struck me when I first came here and uh, back in the day when we'd have a lot, of visit, a lot of visiting four stars who would come and say, you know what, you guys have it tough. You live in a complex world. And I think our students, when they read Thucydides, they, they, hopefully they recognize everybody ha feels like they live in a complex world, that their world was different, but it was equally complex in its own way. So maybe that's one of the big things that, that transcends this is everybody lives in a time where uh, their system is complicated and, and difficult. And uh, now I, I will say we have things and it goes to the your point on, let's say, Russia and the Ukraine. If Russia had no nukes, we'd be acting very differently. Uh, if there, Or if there was no nuclear, if no one had nukes, th this would be a very different war and would be playing out differently, I suspect. Um, so that's one thing is that we shouldn't assume our job uh, or the, the era in which we live is harder to deal with. It's always been hard. This has never been easy. Uh, as uh, one of my former colleagues used to say on stage, uh, strategy is hard. And that's true whether you're fighting with spears and rowboats or whether you're fighting with drones and, uh, you know, uh, fifth generation fighters or sixth generation. Well, I don't know what we're up to, but <laughs> if you're fighting with really high tech uh, equipment. Uh, and I think it's strategy, again, that, that idea of, uh, you know, this is a difficult thing. It has to do with choices and other things. The other thing that I like to take away from this is just, it is one of the few cases in the course where the land power defeats the sea power at sea. And it is worth thinking about what they had to do to make that happen and how hard that might be. You know, so again, as you're thinking of China, how, how hard is it going to be for China to do that? Maybe they can do it, but it, it doesn't happen much in history. And, and maybe that the lack of the pattern is something worth thinking about. And I think hmm. I'll leave it there. Oh, that's a great point. Great point. Outstanding. All right. Well, gentlemen, this was a very interesting and engaging discussion. Thank you very much for your time. And we will uh, we will see some of you on the next episode of uh, Profiles and Strategy. Hey, thanks, John. Great job. Thanks, thanks John. John. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thanks.